Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. My name is Blair Embry. I'm the Community Engagement Manager for Prison Yoga Project. And we are honored today to be hosting Sonia Brown Diaz. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I will do a formal introduction of Sonia. She will offer a land acknowledgement, and then we're going to go into a centering opportunity. Sonia Brown Diaz, RYT 200, has been using trauma-informed yoga practices for over 16 years. After having completed PYP training in Brixton in 2018, Sonia founded Yoga on the Inside, an affiliate partner of PYP and Australian Ambassador, and has introduced trauma-informed yoga classes and programs around Australia, which is 15 programs across nine prisons and counting. With the assistance of local facilitators, Yoga on the Inside programs are gaining more interest as the benefits for incarcerated people continue to be evident. Yoga on the Inside has partnered with other organizations who support impacted individuals by trauma or mental health issues, such as Mates for Mates, who offer veteran support services beyond DV and the NDIS by providing trauma-informed yoga classes to those they serve. Thank you so much for being here, Sonia. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm very humbled <laughs> and nervous. We're so excited. Um, the amount of programs that you have started is incredible. And I'm so excited to hear. Um, and the theme really for today that we want to dive into is about cultural care. Um, so will you lead us in a, a formal land acknowledgement? I would love to hear um, about reciprocity um, and what this process is. Um, and then you can lead us in a centering opportunity as well. Okay, so we begin by acknowledging the traditional owners and custodians of the unceded land on which we meet and practice. And in Brisbane, that's the Mianjin peoples. We acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of all the lands on which we meet and practice, work and live. We pay our respects to the elders, past, present and emerging. We recognise this land always was and always will be Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander lands. Thank you. So for our centering practice today, it's going to be quite um, gentle. And I'm just going to encourage you to <clears throat> find a comfortable seat, whatever that seat may look like for you. So it could be if you're sitting down on a chair, that's perfectly fine. If you're on the ground, uh, you can be cross-legged. If that feels right for your body, um, you may be laying down. You may choose to stand up, whatever feels right for you, your body right now. And starting with a little bit of movement so we can really feel where our body is in space. So where our body is physically right now. So if you're sitting, you may want to rock from side to side. If you're sitting in a chair, you may want to press your feet into the ground. You may want to make a little bit of movement with your shoulders, if that feels right for you. And then slowly coming to some form of stillness so that we can be here settled in our bodies 
for the next few minutes. So starting by taking a few deep breaths in, and this may feel like your whole body breathing, or it may feel like just your natural breath. It may feel very gentle and smooth, or it may feel like you're actually making some sort of conscious effort. So perhaps starting by taking shorter breaths in and longer breaths out. And what that may look like for you is you may like to count the breath in to say two, three, four, five, whatever feels right for your body, and then making the exhale slightly longer. And your choice is always here to either have your eyes closed, and if that doesn't feel right for you right now, you can perhaps bring your chin slightly to your chest and take in a gaze down towards the ground or towards your legs or keeping your eyes fully open. And so noticing our breath now as we return to a normal breathing pattern, whatever that might look like for you, and starting to bring some awareness into our bodies. So noticing any parts of your legs or feet They're making contact with the surface beneath you. Noticing if your shoulders are hunched up towards your ears and perhaps softening those shoulders a little bit by dropping them away from the ears. bringing your attention now to your hands and where they may be resting on your body. And if it's a little bit difficult perhaps to bring your attention to the felt sense of the body, you may like to take your attention instead to your other senses like sound or smell. So maybe listening out for sounds that are around you. Or any smells that you can notice in the air. And noticing maybe when your mind starts to wander a little and being okay with that, just noticing and seeing if you can redirect your attention back to your senses, whether it's your breath passing through your body 
or where your body is making contact with the surface beneath you or your sense of hearing or smell. And we're going to slowly start to bring our attention and our bodies to a sense of being awake. You may want to wriggle toes or fingers or make some small gentle movements with your body. You may like to open your eyes at this stage if you've had them closed. You may want to rock back and forth on your seat if that feels good for you. And I'm going to make some movements with my body just to sort of open it up and really wake up my body so that I can be present for what comes up next. Taking a deep breath in. And a long breath out. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, Sonia. That was beautiful. I would love to start with our trademark question. What is your first memory of yoga? Oh. First memory of yoga. Um, and this will get a little bit deep. So I'm just... Um, Putting a little disclaimer here that um, this may be sensitive to some people. Um, it is still sensitive to me, but I've done a lot of work um, on myself, and um, but it still may be sensitive to other people. So I just acknowledge that some of these topics that I raise um, may be triggering for others. So, um, so my first experience of yoga was. Around 2015, so 17 years ago now. Sorry, 2005. Um, and it had been by then two years since the stillbirth of my twin sons, Isaac and Curtis. And by this stage now in 2005, my daughter had come along, uh, Olivia. And Olivia came along with her own set of gifts, <laughs> some which were, you know, well, they were all surprises, but they were nevertheless gifts. Um, so Olivia's gifts were quite challenging at the beginning. And I think um, having had the experience of the loss of my sons, 
and then not long after that falling pregnant with Olivia, I sort of hadn't had the chance, I don't think, at least in retrospect, to really process that grief, probably in a way that would have been more healthy than what I actually had. So eventually when Olivia comes along with her set of um, issues really, um, which at the time of birth were deemed terminal, and she's 17 now so she's all well and good, but um, but at the time were deemed terminal um, with a massive congenital heart defect um, and a diagnosis of Down syndrome after that. So... Um, it was sort of this compound trauma that I later learned was compound trauma um, or complex trauma. So navigating everything that was going on with Olivia <clears throat> was quite challenging. So I started going to yoga classes just in the local community and um, and the way I explain it is that I really just went for a bit of gentle exercise because, you know, I just had a baby and I didn't want to do anything too strenuous. And um, I noticed that all, and I'm going to be quite blunt here, but all this shit started stirring up, all this stuff started surfacing and I did not know what to do with it. But it felt good. I didn't know what to do with it, but I'm... I was happy that it was happening, even though I was in tears. <laughs> um, and all this stuff started coming to the surface. And then with years of therapy afterwards, I noticed that or I realised that this was all I had been holding and storing this stuff in my body for so long that I just didn't know how to function any other way and I wasn't really functioning. You know, for a long time I wasn't really functioning. Um, only about seven years ago I was diagnosed with PTSD, so it was a pretty late diagnosis. Um, but then it, that made sense as to why I was so dissociated, why I was not in my body at all. I felt like the, the way I described it was I felt like I was walking around with my head and my body completely disconnected. Like I knew my body was walking, but the two weren't connected. And that's the, that's the way it sort of physically felt for me that I just couldn't, yeah. It was, really, it was a really tough time. And for me, yoga um, started reconnecting me back with my body, reconnecting me and allowing me to grieve, you know, which I had sort of you know, just for survival purposes, put on hold. Um, and, and I didn't want to go there a lot. You know, I didn't want to go into those spaces. So yoga gave me that opportunity to be with myself, to allow myself to engage with my body in a way that I found quite gentle. So I was very lucky that I just happened to go to a yoga studio locally that the facilitation now in retrospect was very trauma-informed. Um, and so, yeah, and then I just, I just, it just became part of my practice, my daily practice to, as part of, I guess, um, a whole bunch of modalities towards healing and recovery, yoga was part of that it absolutely and it still is today you know um 
and it's become different now. It's become, um, it's using all the eight limbs of yoga now. It's not just the asana practice, you know, the body movement. It's not just breath work. It's not just meditation. It's it's a way of life, you know, um, and I accredit, <laughs> I accredit this way of life now to my boys who passed because I think were it not for them and that experience as tragic as it was, I honestly don't feel I would have gone down this path because I know what it's like to live in a body that is really challenging, um, in a mind that's really challenging. Um, And so now when I'm in a space with others um, who are equally as, you know, challenged in their own ways, that compassion is authentically there, you know, Um, and my boys have given me this purpose now. So it's, yeah, it's, it's wonderful. <laughs> it's, 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 uh, this is my purpose, you know, and it's heart work. For me, this is heart work, you know. So, um, yeah. Thank you for allowing me to share that. <laughs> I was just going to say thank you for sharing that with us with such a vulnerable piece of your story mm. and the grief and transformation that you allowed to come through as well. Mm. Um, and thank you. I'm also just so happy that you were able to find yoga that held you in this space. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. I'm just going to take a moment for that all to really sink in. I can hear when you tell the story as well, um, you know, the disassociation that happens um, to be able to open the door to grief. It's like you don't you don't know where. If if the bottomless pit does have an ending. Mm. Right. It's like I don't. I can't open that door because I don't know when it will end. Or yeah. it will ever end. Yeah. <clears throat> and that is a constant challenge, you know, because societal um, narratives are that, you know, and I got this from my workplace at the time. My workplace at the time was like, oh, it's it's six months, you know, aren't you open this yet? <laughs> kind of thing, you know. Um, so there was a lot of pressure from and I know because I speak to other parents and I speak to other people who are grieving all sorts of griefs, you know, like it doesn't have to be loss of children. Um, and there is a societal pressure to get over it and move on and and I choose not to do it that way. And that's hard because then you, I think, I, I find it hard because it's almost like I, I need to defend it or, you know, um, justify it. And it's like, no, that that's 
that yeah, yeah, it is a personal choice to stay in that grief, but the way that that grief unfolds and shifts and moves is not like it was at the beginning. So it 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 morphs, it changes over time, and that's okay. And sometimes you go back <laughs> to that real rawness, you know, on events like birthdays and Christmas and, you know, special occasions. Yeah, for sure. But um, it's hard to navigate and there's no rule book for it. So it's, mm. And thank you. And, bra- and thank you for bringing it into the conversation too, right? Because I think it's grief and loss is... And death, really, it's something we don't want to look at in our culture or a lot of cultures, I'll say. And so it's something that people turn away from. I don't I don't know how to look at this. I don't know how to hold you. I don't know how to handle this. I don't even know how to deal with my own grief. So I'm going to look away and I need you to get over it as fast as possible because I can't I, I, I can't handle watching you struggle, right? Or whatever other people's narratives are. Um, so how how did how did your grief transform into a way that you wanted to serve other people? If I'm really honest, um, it was just acknowledging that I'm not in this alone, that there are hundreds and thousands of people that I could walk past on the street every day and they have their own story, whether it's grief and loss or something else. Um, whether it's a traumatic event of any type, because I know that when I facilitate um, in the prisons here and, you know, I share, you know, I share my story, perhaps not in the level of detail that I've been to now, but it's that common understanding that regardless of the traumatic event, itself and the detail around that, how it manifests in us is pretty much we have there's a lot of common threads there. So a lot of us dissociate, a lot of us numb our pain in whatever way we do it. It could be shopping, it could be alcohol, it could be drugs, it could be, you know, sex, it could be anything, right? Um a lot of us have problems sleeping. Um so you know, we disconnect with our bodies. Um, so the way in which trauma manifests in, in the human body, regardless of the event, is something that can connect us all. And I think for me that's the important thing. It's not about my story. It's not about my experience and my event. It's the way I feel is the way a lot of people feel, regardless of the the detail around the event, you know. Um, and I think there's an important part of me that, you know, we'll get into this later with the cultural sensitivity and cultural awareness is acknowledging that this has happened to someone, you know, um, because I think that acknowledgement is what is what unites us, is what connects us when we don't acknowledge that's what I feel is quite divisive mm. in our society in general, you know? Yeah. It's part of the reciprocity piece. I think it's yeah. also, it's seeing the acknowledgement 
Yeah. And uh, I hear that there's even a, a permission piece in that. It, it allows people to show up fully as themselves. And I think in my experience, it's that when I do share <clears throat> that vulnerable side of myself and very authentically, and I'll have tears in class, you know, and, and you know, the participants will go, yeah, me too, you know. And so see, I see your pain, you're seeing mine and I see yours, you know, and we don't need to know the detail but the pain is there, <laughs> you know. When did you, when did you start training to be a yoga teacher or offer or what was, what, what was the next step after you started acknowledging the grief? <clears throat> the next step for me was that I, I kept practicing for a good decade afterwards. Um, after I'd started, and I guess it wasn't till I had done a lot of my own healing work with, you know, with therapists and what have you, and um, that I, I realised that if this is helping me in such a profound way as an adjunct to other therapies, as an adjunct, like it's not the panacea for healing but it contributes to my healing in a very positive way I feel so if it has that potential for me then why would I not want to explore this and share it with others you know um, or at least make it accessible because as I kept going to different studios to attend classes I I was very triggered. I was very triggered by touch. At some points I enjoyed it, you know, but at some points I didn't and I didn't know how to say no. <laughs> I didn't know how to say no. Um, I didn't know how to honour my body and go, this doesn't feel right for me because I had this desire to please the teacher and to keep up and it felt very performance-based and it, it wasn't resonating with me on many levels. So it was probably, I think, it, I can't remember when it was, but I did my teacher training only in 2018 and only, and I did it at Byron Yoga Centre, and it was with the intention, like I think a lot of yoga teachers, that just go, oh, I just want to deepen my practice. I don't want to teach. <laughs> and and I still honestly have no idea how this has happened, but because I can't pinpoint the time, but I've been following James Box's work for Prison Yoga Project for years. And I don't know why. I don't know if it was coming up in Facebook feeds or I honestly have no idea, but I know that I was somehow connected to his work and what he was doing and it just landed for me. But it also landed for me in a way that I was noticing how my daughter with a disability was having difficulty accessing anything in society mm. um, purely because of a label that she holds or that they that that she's been given. 
And so I was like, okay, well, this is, for me, my work, I want it to be around accessibility and not that because of the place you reside, which could be a prison or could be a, you know, a detention centre for refugees or it could be a group home for people with disability. There's so many places that people reside in. They don't all reside in happy homes, you know. Um, either because of those things or because of the label you've been given that you don't have the equal access um, that other people have the privilege of. So when I did my I did my teacher training and then in 2018, that same year that I did my teacher training, somehow it magically appeared that James was doing training in the UK with Josephine Wickstrom and I've gone, I'm going, I'm going to go do this training. So I went and did the training and I had organised to, I reached out to James and Josephine to have a pre-meeting prior to the training and we caught up and um, just there and then James was so supportive, um, anything you need, you know, happy to help and um, and it's gone way beyond that, you know, like his ability to mentor and Bill and yourself and Nicole and Josephine, um, your mentorship has meant so much to me. But after having done James's training, I was really quite firm and quite passionate that I could integrate my purpose of bringing this trauma-informed approach um, of yoga not only to people who are incarcerated but to other marginalised groups, so I guess what we call marginalised groups, you know, in at least in the Australian community. So, um it really fueled that fire. It's like, okay, I didn't want to teach, but now I do. <laughs> but this, but I've got no desire to teach in the studio because there's a, plenty of that. They're, they're, they're catered for, but there's a whole bunch of people who aren't, you know. So, yeah. <laughs> what happened next? Well, next, um, oh, God, I did a lot of work. <laughs> I did a lot of work. I probably researched for about six months mm. um, on what was going on here in the Australian um, criminal justice system in terms of rehabilitation programs. And I noticed that at least, and look, I'll go back because that research showed me a couple of things. The first thing it showed me was that they don't divulge too much on their websites as to what they actually do. So it's very generic, you know. We've got alcohol and other drug programs. We've got um, domestic violence programs. We've got uh, sex offender rehabilitation programs. But it doesn't say what those things are. So it revealed that to me that, you know, even the family members of people who are incarcerated really don't know, have got no way of knowing um, from a public perspective of what's going on in terms of rehabilitation programs. Um, and secondly, it highlighted to me from what I could see that 
the majority of rehabilitation programs <clears throat> were criminogenic or criminogenic, however you want to pronounce it, programs. So it was to address the offending. So, you know, if your offence was related to alcohol and other drugs or you had an alcohol or drug addiction issue, we'll address that, um, which is great. Um, if you're a sex offender, we'll have a program for you. Um, and they're all wonderful programs, but I felt in having a look at this that there wasn't anything really about generic well-being. You know, it's my theory has always been you can educate people in prison, you can um, have literacy and numeracy programs to, you know, raise the education standard um, so that then when they leave, when they're released back into community, they've got that as something that they can take away with them and that's really beneficial. But if you still don't have the ability to regulate your emotions, it's no good that you can read and write <laughs> because you're going to be more likely to reoffend if you don't have other tools. And so those tools, to me, from what I could see just looking at, you know, corrective services all around Australia, just looking at their websites, at that time there didn't seem to be a lot of transparency in in terms of what they offered for the well-being of a human being um, that would help them when they're released so that they're able to engage their nervous system in a healthy way. They're able to, you know, think before they act, uh, let be less impulsive. Um, so it... it yeah, I started looking at what James was doing and what you guys were doing in the US and I thought, well, surely that's possible here. And, I, yeah, I did months and months of research and found that there had been one pilot program done in Canberra in the Australian Capital Territory. It was a, a 10 or 12-week pilot program. Um, you know, the evidence was quite clear, although there wasn't, yeah, I guess that the program didn't go long enough and so the evidence was quite clear that it was beneficial but there wasn't enough real data around it. So I thought I've got to do something here. So, yeah, I started approaching the prisons and that was hard because I don't know what it's like in other countries but there is no information on who the person is to contact. So I dug up annual reports and strategic plans and business plans and all of a sudden there was a name and, you know, it's like a treasure hunt. <laughs> it's like a treasure hunt. I was like, oh, just putting the pieces together of the puzzle and going, oh, now I have a name. <laughs> I'm going to approach that. Like it was hard. Um, it was hard work. Um, but then I was given an opportunity to present to a group of what they call violence prevention coordinators here in Queensland. Um, so through Queensland Corrective Services, um, they gave me an opportunity to present a proposal. So I put a proposal together and had a chat and then from there that's when things started happening. So, uh, so we've had a program now going in Brisbane Women's Correctional Centre for three years 
you know, from that one meeting, you know, now we've got 15-odd programs around nine prisons and that's growing. So now there's more interest um, from New South Wales. So we've just finished a pilot program, a 10-week pilot program. We finished at the end of August um, in the first prison in New South Wales. That's gone exceptionally well. And and now there's more interest from another three prisons in New South Wales. So, you know, it, it takes time and work. And, like, I think like any country, <laughs> the minute that you're dealing with government, you have to really quickly bring into practice your sense of patience <laughs> um, because nothing happens fast. And therein lies the practice. <laughs> it's incredible the amount of rigor and determination and patience that you cultivated and all of the fruit that is being now available because of all of the seeds that you that you planted over time, right? And and that and and now prisons are coming to you for program. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Incredible. So, uh, um, and I, I, I want to hear more about the Australian system and I agree it's, it's, and you spoke to it. I wrote down transparency, right? It's basically like, you know, you have holding websites for prisons or jails or detention yeah. centers, and it doesn't speak to what actually happens and you can't, you don't know who's in charge. You don't know the language of who's in charge, who makes decisions, who does budgets. Um, so I love hearing this, um, the investigation hat that you put on and uh, digging through the internet and paperwork. Um, it's really incredible. I, I, I have a marketing diploma, which I've never used, but now in this sense, it's coming really handy because now I can put that marketing hat on and, really try to investigate and do my research and, you know, do that comparison of what other services are out there. You know, if I put my business hat on, it's like, who's my competition, you know? Um, so I do have to do that. Um, so whilst this is hard work, um, I need to do that due diligence in order for, and and I'll be really clear here that, you know, I'm really invested in keeping the integrity of the program, especially James's work that we do leverage from and his training, um, to keep the integrity of James's work always as the focal point so that we don't dilute, you know, the programs. They don't become just go into prison and teach yoga. No. You know, like to me, that's that's what I'm super, super passionate about and focused on is um, that we don't water down something just because we have a desire to serve, but we also have the potential to do more harm than good. So I'm really, I'm really cautious, you know, um, and that cautiousness comes into when I interview people who are interested in becoming facilitators when we have an opportunity and I put a post or an ad and I invite people to express interest, that interview process for me is quite rigorous because I 
I want to make sure that we have the right fit, you know, because of the people that we're serving. It's they're at the centre of this. It's not about us. Yeah. And the trauma-informed piece, right? Like most yoga teacher trainings prepare you for a studio yoga class. Mm. And you spoke to how you were triggered Mm. yoga classes. So really having the preparation to be able to go in and know how to care and serve a specific population is so important. Mm. And maybe this is the perfect time to get into it now too. You know, this cultural awareness piece um, for bringing in trauma-informed yoga. Yeah. Um, You know, Australia has... I don't know all of the specifics, but uh, a long history of colonization that is still impacting people today. And and maybe you can take the lead on whether there's history to briefly catch us up on um, and maybe some numbers for uh, the populations that you serve as well. So I'll give you some numbers, and this comes from the Australian Bureau of Statistics. So they're the ones that capture data for an array of different areas um, within Australia. So in terms of the criminal justice system here in Australia and how it's governed and managed, they're managed at a state-by-state level. So we've got six states in Australia and two major mainland territories. Um, The states and territories, they assume the major responsibility and powers for social issues, including legislative powers, and for the administration of criminal justice. So it's a state-by-state scenario. So Australia's got no one single criminal justice system. It's a state-by-state scenario. But we've got federal laws. Okay. But from a criminal justice system perspective, it's a state-by-state scenario. So okay. you can commit a crime in this state and the way that it's dealt with, it can be completely different in another state. And because you can have a law, you, you know, you can... Um, I think we were saying prior to, you know, when we got on the chat beforehand that, say, for example, there are things that are legal in one state that are illegal in another state. So weed, marijuana, whatever you want to call it, is legal in some states and illegal in another state. So in one state you can be, it's criminalised. In another state it's decriminalised. So it's state by state, our criminal justice system here. Um. In terms of numbers, so our country's population is roughly around the 24 million, a little bit less. So it's not a big population when you think about the land mass, but most of our people live on the outskirts of of Australia. Um, We have our rates of incarceration roughly, this is middle of this year, these statistics, was 196 people per 100,000. So this is general population we're talking about. We're not touching on Indigenous figures yet. Um, The average prison term or imprisonment term is 36 months. And the number of prisons that we have here in Australia is 111. 
which is not a lot when, you know, I mean, I guess for the population it is, but, you know, when I hear about the number of prisons in the US, like one state might have 111 prisons. <laughs> you know, it, it is, I think it, it's valuable to compare, but then sometimes it's, you know, it does the, the numbers don't quite match up. However, this is, I think, the really thing that, it hurts my heart <laughs> um, that there's a real disproportionate rate of people who are from Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander lands who are incarcerated. And the incarceration rates for them is 10 times higher than the rest of the Australian population. And the main reason that I guess is documented is, you know, complex issues such as traumatic history and generational disadvantage. And when I look at, not when I look at, but when I'm in a space in a prison facility practising with majority uh, First Nations people, it is very hard to not acknowledge the, um, the impacts of our history on these people. It breaks my heart because you can see the, the difference in um, treatment that they've experienced, you know, um, and so it's really important that reciprocity, you know, um, you know, we've got here in Australia a reconciliation action plan and and it tells us, it sort of guides us on what we can do, you know, to facilitate reconciliation at a very, at, a, at an individual level, let alone, you know, um, a corporate level or institutional level, at a very individual level, and that's just purely acknowledging that this stuff did happen. Even if we weren't the perpetrators, you know, um, it impacts people today, and I think that's where I can relate, you know, and my personal traumatic, you know, experience is that I know that what I went through impacts my daughter. It didn't happen to her but it impacts her because of the way I behave, the way I experience life, you know. Um, so absolutely, you know, and I think just a pure acknowledgement that this did happen. Was it my fault directly? No, but, but that doesn't take away the reality for people, you know. So it's, yeah. So this is some of the very high-level statistics. What we've got here, though, in Australia is that we've got 28, 30% of our people who are incarcerated in general are on remand or what we call pre-trial. So they haven't been sentenced yet. They're awaiting sentencing. And people can wait years, be waiting years to be sentenced. Um, 4% of our prison population is juveniles. 8% is female. So the rest are males 
8% of females of the gen- generic prison population, not Indigenous, mm-hmm. not First Nations, just generic. Um, and then when we look at things like the mental health issues, um, you know, they're saying that one in three people entering, so they have, they haven't, they're entering, one in three have got a history of mental health disorders. And 27% are currently taking um, mental health-related medications. So that's a huge. Um, the other interesting statistic, though, that really spoke to me, and I guess because I'm sort of close to this issue, you know, in other parts of my life, is that 12% of the prison population has an intellectual disability. And up to 30% have a borderline intellectual disability. So, you know, we have an overrepresentation of First Nations people. Of that population, a healthy percentage of those may have an intellectual disability or a borderline intellectual disability. And on top of that, the people who aren't First Nations and are incarcerated, I've come, I come across them, you know. Like, there are a lot of people with invisible disabilities. Um, Potentially that, 32%. Yeah, that, that are disadvantaged in the criminal justice procedures mm. that go on. They may not have the best representation. They may not be able to speak for themselves. You know, they don't have advocates. Um, they don't have perhaps close family. Um, they may be under the protection of the public trustee, you know, who may or may not really care about their well-being. Um, so we have a lot of um, factors that we need to consider when we are holding space for people in this setting, you know. Um rightly or wrongly they are there and how are we going to do our best to facilitate um, the potential for healing, the potential for change or transformation. Um, So, yeah, those statistics, you know, I find them scary, you know. I find them sad. Um, And I'm really conscious of that we don't keep contributing to that harm, you know, that we that we do our best with some level of education and some level of understand just generic understanding. And that could be doing some cultural awareness training. You know, it doesn't take a lot of effort. You know, we can acknowledge by um, doing an acknowledgement of country at the beginning of every class, knowing the land that you're on. Like it doesn't, it's not a lot of effort, you know, and becoming allies with people and supporting, um, recognising that different cultures all around the world, this is not just Australia, different cultures all around the world have proven methods of healing, can we somehow integrate that into the work that we do?
you know, we're not the only ones, you know. I mean, traditional cultures like Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have been on this land for over 60,000 years. They didn't survive by pure luck, <laughs> you know. They had organisational structures. They had ways of uh, being in community with themselves and with other mobs or tribes or clans, Um they had what they call kinship care. So it's a real um, family-oriented method of um, caring for one another, of disciplining. They had these in place way before um, white man came. (laughs) So, you know, we have these biases, I think, Um, and these stereotypes in mind, but I think we often don't remember that this is one of the oldest cultures, you know, on the planet and they're still here. (laughs) They survived and so surely we've got something to learn, you know, from them, (laughs) that we're not the ones always teaching and we they have to integrate into our world. I think there's an opportunity here for, especially in this space, you know, that we're going into where we're the minority. Mm. We have an opportunity to learn, you know, and wouldn't that be wonderful if we could? Thank you. I know that we had dropped a a link in our shared document. You know, I, I heard really at least two things that you could do almost immediately if you haven't done right. Mm. Incorporating a, Acknowledgement of country. Is that the, the, the language? Yes. The acknowledgement of country. Acknowledgement of country. Um, incorporating that into every class, not just in, in incarcerated settings, right? How, how can you offer that in public studio classes as well or, or anywhere you hold space? Um, yeah. And then I also heard you say doing an, an indigenous cultural training. Um, Absolutely. Is there anywhere specific that you would recommend people do training with was it whether it's through like an organization or an institution so there's a couple of things so um i don't know if i sent you the link blair but i will show you quickly just on i'm going to show you here it's probably going to go backwards but this is yoga australia so yoga australia have got a reflect reconciliation action plan And this document gives us guides and suggestions on how we can be more culturally aware and inclusive in our practices and it doesn't matter where it is. And so some of the simple things, you know, and we do this anyway, like we do it as in a trauma-informed approach, that we don't use Sanskrit. Why do we have to use Sanskrit? So that can be one easy thing that we can go, okay, well, I'm not going to use that. And I'm not going to use it not just because I'm being culturally sensitive. It's because there's really no need. And if I don't don't use Sanskrit, I include everyone, regardless of race, regardless of educational level, regardless of cognitive um you know, um, levels or ability. So it's, and I, and so that's just something really simple we can do. We can do the acknowledgement of country. We can do not use Sanskrit. Basic stuff, you know. Um, we can bring our 
our delivery approach to a more simplistic uh, way of delivery, that we can deliver in a more simplistic way, the effect and the outcomes are all still the same, you know. Um, so I guess it's it brings another thing to mind, though, Blair, is like why am I doing this work? Because if I'm doing it so that I, I can feel better about myself, then you're in the wrong job, right? It's not for you. So it's not about me. It's about the people I'm serving and the people I'm serving may require, like my daughter needs, adjustments, right? If they require adjustments. Um, and they're not hard to do and they serve everyone. So you're not doing it just for these people. Oh, I need to be precious and careful about these people. It's like this is for everyone. It benefits everyone. And I think if we look at things through a lens of benefit to all, we don't need to be, we can take all the labels away and everyone gets to benefit from a practice, you know, or anything, whatever it is. Um, so it's sort of, yeah, and, and I think really just acknowledging that People are quite wise about themselves and sometimes they know what works for them and, and not assuming that they don't because of we look at them through some stereotypical lens, you know. Um, that sense of not forcing something down someone's throat because it worked for you, therefore it must, it's going to work. But just I think our ability to be gentle with people and welcoming and embracing other people's points of views and perceptions and still, you know, having our own, that's okay. Um, but how, how we incorporate everyone's diversity into the practice and then that becomes a way of living, I think, you know. Thank you. I heard at least, you know, five ways to be able to bring trauma-informed and cultural awareness into a space holding. Um, I also hearing you say about being able to have trauma-informed facilitation and accessibility. Yeah, right? absolutely. Because... Um, you know, all of the hidden pieces of ourselves, right? Like when you were sharing that you're in class, but you want to please the teacher. Yeah. It might not feel good for you. It might not be in your best interest to do this pose in this way, but you're going to do it because of a narrative that you hold that you want to please someone in a position of power. Yeah. Right. So really about trauma-informed facilitation is removing hierarchy. Absolutely. Uh, and also still being aware that there is power in leading a group, right? It's that balance. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously, which is why we facilitate in the ways that we do, you know, we facilitate in a, some sort of open shape, you know, um, whether it's a circle or an open square or, you know, a, a rainbow, an arch or, you know, um, any of those things that the you know, so that there's some sort of level of equality, you know. We don't go dressed up in our Lululemons and hair, you know, makeup and 
we go in as as equal as possible without being condescending, you know. Um, so we cre- we try to create. You know, that may not land for everyone, but we're going in with their intent, the intention of trying to create a space of as much equality as possible. And then that comes down, like we were saying before, to the language that we're using. If I'm using all this language about opening up our solar plexus, all of a sudden I'm up here. I know more than you. I'm more educated than you. There's no need, like, in, there's no need for that, you know. In my experience, there's no need for it. It hasn't made my experience any better because someone used that language, you know. Um, so stripping the commercialism away from our yoga practice and bringing it back down to its authentic roots, you know, I think that's what makes it accessible to everyone. Should they choose to engage, you know, and what engagement looks like is different for every individual within that class. It's different. And being okay with someone laying on the mat listening to the music, that's okay. You know, like that's your practice. So, um, yeah. Thank you. I want to open up to our audience and community. If people have questions, now is a great time. You can start to put some of those questions into the Q&A box um, and I can read them out loud and Sonia can respond. And while we're allowing people to get into the Q&A box, um, I just want to give you the floor again, Sonia. Um for anything that hasn't been said yet to bring up, whether it's about um, populations or the criminal justice system in Australia, um, things that you've seen that have been beneficial. Um, Yeah. Anything that we just haven't touched on yet today. One big thing that we haven't touched on and I really wanted to do (laughs) was acknowledge all of the facilitators that we have here around Australia who make this possible because I'm a one-man band in terms of engaging the prisons and what have you, right? That's that's fine. I do all the background work and, yes, I go in and facilitate, but this is not possible without amazing facilitators. So I just want to say a heartfelt thank you to all of the, all of the facilitators that we've had you know, since the beginning that have come and gone, who are still here, new ones. Um, I think at present we've probably got about, I'm guessing here because I can't do the maths in my head right now, but maybe about 12 facilitators. Um, No more, probably about 15 facilitators. So some in some cases where we do morning and afternoon classes, we'll have one person who does the morning and another person who comes and does the afternoon or it just depends. Um, but, yeah, we've got an amazing group of humans <laughs> who um, do this work and do it with passion and they do it with purpose, you know, um, And when they report back on how the experience has been for them, um, it reminds me of how it is for me, you know, that 
I walk away with my heart so full and it's the only way I can describe it. And I think sometimes when I'm interviewing teachers and I'm going, oh, this is what it feels like, but you won't know until maybe, you know, maybe it'll feel like this and then they'll go, oh, yeah, I know what you mean (laughs) Um, once they've done it. So I'm really grateful for the teachers that we have. And so for anyone hearing this at a later date that might be interested in facilitating with you (laughs) with yoga on the inside in Australia, um, what would you say to them? What would you say to someone who might be interested in facilitating yoga? Just drop me an email. (laughs) Really just, just send me an email. Um, You've got my email address there, Blair. Uh, It's just admin at yoga on the inside.com.au. You'll have to, excuse my website because it's one thing I haven't been able to get to in terms of updating it. It's a little bit out of date. I need to update it. Um, So, yeah, just drop me an email. I mean, now at the moment we're having discussions with three facilities in New South Wales. Um, I guess the, the, the reality, and I think this is the case, more than likely worldwide, is that a lot of our prison facilities are in regional areas. So, you know, we may have a lot of interest from, say, facilitators or teachers in Sydney, but there aren't too many prisons in the metropolitan area. There are some in Sydney, but there aren't too many there. So, you know, maybe there'll be one in Penrith, which is in the southwest. Um so there's some on the northern coast of um, New South Wales. So, you know, the opportunities will be there if there is a facility there that is wanting a program. But, um, yeah, unfortunately I just think it's pretty common that most prisons um, are not in metropolitan areas. So. Which I know in the in the US, um, it's by design, oftentimes, yeah. right? So, what what would you say is like the average commute to? You said it was um, in regional areas. Um, what would you say is like the average commute to uh, a prison? You'd be looking at a minimum of half an hour, minimum. So it really depends. Um, and that's just the travel time, right? That could be just the travel time. And then you have to allow it to be there 15 minutes beforehand because you've got to get through security. You know, you absolutely have to do an induction at the centre um, that has nothing to do with us, but this, every centre has their own induction. And even if you are working, say, here in Queensland, you know, I can work at one facility and then i go to another facility, they have their own security clearance documentation that you have to go through again. So even though you have been approved for one centre, it doesn't mean you've been approved for the whole state. And then you've got to do an induction at that centre as well. So, yeah, it's, um, you know, the the induction's an hour, a couple of hours. It it varies. So it just depends on... um, It goes centre by centre, but, yeah, you have to allow at least 15 minutes to get through security. Um, 
Yeah. So it varies. Um, it does. Are there anywhere as of date that you're looking um, specifically for facilitators? Any shout outs that we we want to put out into the universe now? So if you're in Darwin, which is on the top end of Australia, please reach out because there is potential for a program up that way. We're just waiting to hear back. Um, if you're in the southwest around the Penrith, Richmond area, please reach out. If you're in the um, area of Mudgee, M-U-D-G-E-E, um, if you're in the Mudgee area, please reach out. And actually, if you're in South Australia, also let us know. I'm so excited to get this recording out there <laughs> floating around to bring in even more trauma and mm. facilitators for Australia. Um, and and, is- I, yeah. and I want to highly recommend prison yoga projects, foundational training, please. Thank Can you. you put that, put that on the link? Absolutely yeah. link in right now. Cause the foundational training can be done at your own pace. Um, it's ideally six weeks, isn't it? But you know, I would say having kind of a container within, you know, there's a potency of staying within the work. Yeah. But so the foundational training is how I got involved with prison yoga project. I was really just blown away by this training. Um, and, uh, it just, really opened something inside of me, uh, you know, uh, rage, grief, um, compassion, understanding. Um, it opened up so many things inside of me, but I needed to take a break during some of the training, right? I was like, okay, like I need, I need to sit with this. And that is what I really love about this self-paced piece um, is that so you can sit with these, um, the paradox really of so much of this work. Um, And it's about 24 hours of self-paced training which I think it's quite accessible as well. You know, we have podcasts and videos. Um, so it's not all just uh, reading training. Mm. We offer four two hour workshops, which really bring in this um, embodiment piece of the work that we do. So yeah, thank you so much for bringing up the foundational training. The other thing I did want to point out that with that foundational training, and we have had some feedback, which I've passed on to you guys already, <clears throat> is that there is a module there that talks about I guess, America's uh, racial issues and the history of that. And, you know, that sometimes is a a module that, you know, people from other countries have looked at that and gone, oh, that doesn't, I I don't need to know that because my country is different. We've got our own history and that's more important for me. Um, And whilst there's a lot of comparisons, um, you know, learning about redlining is not something that we've we don't have that issue here, for example. So um so I think just keeping that in mind that there is this module there, um, you know, and we can work around what that may look like in terms of the completion of that module, maybe. I don't know. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also something to bring up too, you know, um, you've done all of this research and actually, you know, the, the whole piece of this, um, webinar is this cultural awareness, right? Oh. It's so for a facilitator to have a deep understanding of the cultural history and harm that has been caused is important to be able to go in and facilitate. Um, so maybe we'll be able to get a, a little uh, Australian module added. Uh, I'm working on that. <laughs> it's been a while that I've been working on that module, so I just haven't gotten around to um and I think the issue sometimes in working with these specific things is that the numbers change, right? The statistics change, and that's okay because we can just reference that it was at a point in time. But the issues are still the same. Yeah, absolutely. And those and numbers should always be updated. Yeah. 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 I will give you the microphone again for any last pieces that haven't been said today um, or anything that you just want people to hold um, as they as they walk through their Saturday. Firstly, I just really want to thank you guys, Blair and Prison Yoga Project for supporting myself and the teachers here so much, um, way beyond any expectation I ever had. Um, and just know, I think for anyone who's listening to this, knowing that you have so much potential to contribute in any way, it doesn't have to be in a prison facility, you know, it can work, it can be in domestic violence shelters. You're still working with human beings who, like all of us, had a need for belonging, a need to be cared for, um, a need to be acknowledged. And, you know, so finding those avenues that speak to you, whether it's in a prison setting or not, um, because the people who are in prison are in our community as well, do you know what I mean? And unfortunately, the recidivism rates are such that they'll cycle back out into community and perhaps sometimes back into prison. So, you know, the people that you're dealing with on the outside or on the inside, could you might be dealing with, with them outside as well. So how do we hold space for all of our humanity? Um and that we're all susceptible to to poor choices and to um, factors in our lives that are out of our control. So um, I'd just say to yeah, if if this is work that you want to do, um, then perhaps see where in where in other parts of your community can you do this. Beautifully said. Thank you so much for joining us. This was one of my favorite webinars. This was an incredible conversation. Thank you so, so much for joining us. Thank you. I can see a comment there in the Q&A, so I just thought I'd point that out to you, Blair. Oh, let's see. And Maria is an amazing supporter of ours in Western Australia, so I really want to acknowledge her because she's got so much dedication and passion. <laughs> um, but you'll see her comment there, which you might want to share. 
Um, yeah, so I'll speak to this too. So uh, Maria says, Sonia, I applaud your passion and persistence. Congrats and keep doing what you're doing. However, even with the continuing with training, unfortunately, there is so much red tape within government and systems. Um, is is oh, Western Australia yeah. um, at the moment? All restorative programs have been cut back due to lack of funding. And so this is, I guess, even more so why I speak to this thing about if your purpose is to take this practice to people who are marginalised in any way, then it doesn't have to be in the prison system. You know, it could be, like I just spoke the other day, I went to what we call a PCYC or maybe I think in the US it's a YMCA. So it's like a community um I think it's called the Police Citizens Youth Club. So it's sort of run by uh, the Queensland, well, here in Queensland, it's the Queensland Police Service. So, um, but it's a space where youth in particular can go and do all sorts of activities and programs um, and it sort of caters for kids who are perhaps on the fringes a little bit or at risk. And I just popped in there the other day and I was talking to a lady there about something completely different and telling her what I do. She just asked and I was telling her what I do and she goes, oh, maybe you can do a program here because we've got women here, we've got a domestic violence program that we run here. Great. So it's that stuff that and and the thing is you have to do the work. It's not going to come to you. You really have to do the work. Um, and whilst, you know, when there's opportunities, I'm happy to go, hey, we've got an opportunity. Do you want to come and do this work? That's great. But you have to do the work. Yeah. Yeah. It's not for the faint of heart. <laughs> God, no. <laughs> Thank you again so much for joining us. I thank you. this conversation. Um, and can't thank you enough. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.